Now would you turn with me to um, the 19th chapter of 1 Kings. I know I said I was going to preach on the Song of Songs this morning, but I lied. Um, I, I have been writing a book for the last few weeks on the Song of Solomon, and I thought I would be ready to preach this uh, Sunday on that material, but I'm not, and so I decided to uh, wait a week or so, so just to be patient, it's coming, but uh, not this morning. 1 Kings 19. This is uh, one incident from the life of Elijah. Elijah is one of my, my favorite characters. What a, what a man he was. He came stalking out of the backwoods of, of Israel in the mid-9th uh, century uh, B.C. in his turned-out sheepskin uh, coat. Uh, he's described with a, with a strange idiom in the Old Testament. He's called a Lord of Hair which probably suggests that he was a very hairy man. He had a thick uh, beard and, uh, and lots of hair that probably stuck straight out from his head. Uh, when he walked into Jezreel, he must have looked like an explosion in a mattress factory because the, uh, the, the author of the story describes him as lordly in hair. Makes me jealous, but uh, that's the way, that's the way uh, it is for some folks. Uh, he... Uh, his, his main ministry was to raise Cain with the uh, religious and political establishment of, of Israel. Ahab was the king of the northern kingdom at that time, one of the most, uh, most wicked of all the kings of, of the northern kingdom. All of them are said to have done evil in the sight of the Lord. Ahab was the worst. He formed a, a political alliance with the kingdom off to the west of Israel, the, the nation of Phoenicia, through a a royal marriage. He married Jezebel, who was the daughter of a man by the name of Ethbaal. We know him from secular history. A murderous man who assassinated his own brother to come to the throne and must have passed on some of his murderous genes to, uh, to Jezebel because she was, without question, the meanest woman who ever lived. Cruel and, and vicious. As someone has said, she made... Uh, Lucretia Borgia and Mary, Queen of, Sp- of Scots, look like den mothers by comparison. When she came over from, uh, from Phoenicia into Israel, she brought with her all of her Canaanite gods, the Baals, the Ashtaroth, all of the priests and the courtesans that, that served uh, in the Baal temples in, in Phoenicia and introduced Baalism, the worship of Baal, as the state religion of Israel. No question that she wore the royal pants in the family. She, she ran things. She, was, she ruled Ahab and uh, controlled, to a large extent, the religious life of the kingdom. For that reason, Elijah was, for most of his career, in conflict with her and with her husband Ahab. And uh, perhaps the greatest of those confrontations is described for us in chapter 18, the chapter that precedes the one we want to look at this morning. That's that classic uh, uh, showdown with the priests of Baal on top of Mount uh, Carmel, from which uh, Elijah emerged victorious, as you know. And we pick up the story in the last verse of chapter 48, verse 46, where we're told that the power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, or girding up his loins, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel, which was about 25 miles from Carmel. He was so exhilarated, so adrenalized by his, uh, his victory on top of Mount Carmel that he ran all the way to Jezreel. 
And as he was running, visions of sugar plums danced in his head. He was thinking about uh, starting Bible studies in the capital city and becoming the court chaplain and uh, starting prayer groups with the Senate and the House. And he was thoroughly excited about the prospects of his, uh, of his new ministry. As Lucy once said to Charlie Brown, winning isn't everything, winning big is. <laughs> and uh, Elijah had just won big. And uh, he's looking ahead to what, what will transpire when he gets back to Jezreel. But in the first verse of chapter 19, we're told that Ahab told Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. In Hebrew, it's a little poem. Uh, May the gods get me if I don't get thee, is the idea. and, And she meant it. And Elijah knew she meant it. He knew how murderous she was. And so his uh, snappy rejoiner was to uh, turn on his heels and run for his life. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid, or some, some uh, uh, versions say he saw, that is, he saw the handwriting on the wall. He realized what had happened, that he had lost favor in the court, and uh, he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba, which uh, is 70 miles to the south, he ran for 70 miles through the desert to Beersheba. That gives you some idea of how great his fear was. Uh, He left his servant there. The poor boy probably was worn out by that time. (laughs) While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Enough is enough, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Uh, We we would say today that Elijah was depressed, or more colloquially, he was was bummed out. Um, Most of us get get depressed, mildly depressed from time to time. You have blue Mondays and off days, and you get the blahs, and things just don't seem to go well on some days. For other people, the problem is much more severe. Depression is is chronic and and long-term. And it's a state of mind, a state of being. Remember the, the character in Little Abner, Joe Biffelsticks, who used to walk around with a big black cloud over his head. It was always raining on him. He was always melancholy, full of gloom. For some people, that's, uh, that's just the way things are. They're always down. Our decade has been called by psychologists the age of melancholy and correspondingly the age of mood elevators and tranquilizers. The last figures that I saw indicate that 41% of the population of the United States use Valium to some extent. They keep it around the house, at least, for emergencies. Others are addicted uh, to various tranquilizers and mood elevators. Problems endemic. You couldn't talk to a group like this without realizing that some of you are in that state of mind right now. You're either deeply or mildly depressed. And and therefore, we can learn from Elijah not only about the the causes of his depression, the things that precipitated his his melancholy, but but his recovery, the way in which he was restored. Now, note what what happens. We're told in the last part of verse 5 that an angel touched him. He had fallen asleep under this little juniper tree out in the desert. 
An angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, which was 200 miles away from Beersheba. On the strength of that food, he traveled 40 days straight into the desert for 200 miles. You talk about carbohydrate loading. That's a good example. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now, there are are a number of causes for depression. And some of the causes for Elijah's depression, depression were quite deep. But the Lord started on what appears to us to be a more superficial level. Because Elijah was worn out. He had been locked in mortal combat with the priests of Baal. He had uh, traveled for, what, almost 300 miles in the last few days? Or actually, it would be more like 95 miles to Beersheba. Uh, He was worn out. The man was tired. He was exhausted, which leads me to believe that very often depression can be attributed to something physical. It can be some chemical imbalance, which uh, can be medicated or may be medicated, or it can simply be because we're fatigued. I know for myself, when I'm tired, uh, molehills look monstrous. And uh, everything seems to be insoluble. All the problems just seem uh, impossible to tackle and, and solve. At which times, the most spiritual thing to do is not to pray or read your Bible, but to go to bed, frankly. And that's what happened here. Uh, God let Elijah get some rest. He went went to sleep under the broom tree, and and then the angel cooked some food, a cake, apparently angel food cake. And... uh, (laughs) Sorry about that. And uh, nourished him and uh, gave him a chance to rest some more and fed him some more and then sent him on his way, see? And that wasn't the the total extent uh, of Elijah's problem. But before God could reach into the deeper levels of his life, he had to solve his problem on this purely physical level. The man was tired. So God let him rest. He was nourished properly. And he was sent on his way to the place of revelation. He was sent to Sinai, where he went into, my translation says, a cave, but literally it's the cave. Which causes us to to think, now what cave is on Mount Sinai that we know about? What cave is described in the Bible? Well, there's really only one cave that's described any place else in the Bible at Sinai. It's the cave in which God revealed himself to Moses. Moses came down from Sinai with the law after the first giving of the commandments, and uh, he walked into the uh, midst of this uh, orgiastic uh, worship around the golden calf, broke the, um, broke the, uh, uh, the tablets of the law in despair, went off by himself, and, and God revealed himself to Moses on that particular in, uh, instance. He, in that instance, he put him in the, in the cleft of the rock, in the cave. 
And uh, he said in a symbolic way, Moses, I can't tell you everything about myself. No one knows everything about me, but I'll let you see my backside. That is, I'll let you see some part of me. And you have in, in uh, Exodus 33 and 34 the beautiful self-portrait of God. Despite Israel's uh, idolatry, God is compassionate and merciful. He forgives from one generation to the next. Uh, he may have to deal with sin, but basically he's a loving, compassionate, merciful, forgiving, loyal Lord. And that's what uh, got Moses out of the doldrums. That's what set him free to go back and, and into a position of leadership. Now, all of that happened in the key, the place of revelation. And it was to that spot that God led, led Elijah. Because the way out of his depression was to see God as he really is. Now, notice what happens. Uh, verse, uh, verse 33. Oh, excuse me. Uh, verse Last part of verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replies in verse 10. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I only I am left. And now they're trying to kill me too. <laughs> you ever feel that way? <clears throat> you ever hear the little ditty that the kids quote? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. That's the way Elijah was feeling. He was feeling sorry for himself. He was filled with self-pity. And self-pity will always make you depressed. Always. You know how he got, uh, he got so self-pitying? He was totally unrealistic in his expectations. He had seen God act in dramatic ways to deliver at Mount Carmel. And when, Elijah, when Jezebel got uh, after him, he assumed that God would deal with her in the same way. There would be a mighty flash of of lightning, a thunderous clap, and Jezebel would just uh, be uh, annihilated. But she wasn't. He was totally unrealistic in his expectations. God had disappointed him. Happens to us all the time. We have expectations of God that are unrealistic. We have expectations of our husbands or wives or our children or our employers or our employees or our friends or our associates and and we think they're going to perform in a certain way, and they don't. They let us down, and we start feeling sorry for ourselves. Or we have high expectations for ourselves, sometimes totally unrealistic expectations of how we're going to behave in a certain situation, and we aren't able to do it. And so we get, we get all self-pitying, and we paddle around in our little puddle of gloom, and we get depressed. You want to get depressed? Then feel sorry for yourself. It's as easy as falling off a log. It'll happen every time. And that's what happens to Elijah. He's just dwelling on his, his adversity and the way that he had been treated, and, and now he's down in the dumps. Now, notice God does not scold him. He reveals himself to him. The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. First, a great windstorm that broke uh, large pieces of rock off of the mountain, and they rolled down the side of the mountain and started landslides. And, and you know, the, it must have been uh, the noise must have been incredible, and the the dust flying up into the air. And, and Elijah was terrified, but God was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, and the mountain shook. And remember, Elijah was still in the cave. He had not yet come out, and this must have frightened him even more. But God was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, probably a lightning a storm sort of thing we had this morning. But uh, the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. Literally a gentle breeze blowing. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the, at the mouth of the cave. See, again, Elijah's problem was that his, his expectations of God were unrealistic. He expected God to work in, in earthquake and in fire and in thunderous claps and, and bolts of lightning and obvious, majestic displays of power. But God does not always work that way. As a matter of fact, you can never tell about God. You never know how he's going to work. He's always unpredictable. And more often than not, he's working in quiet, unseen, imperceptible ways, like a breeze blowing. And that's what Elijah needed to see. God was at work to fulfill his promise to Elijah. God was going to use Elijah. He was going to change his world through Elijah. But he wasn't going to do it the way Elijah expected. See, what gets us into trouble is that we tend to anticipate God. We think we know better than God how he's going to work. God's going to deliver us from our financial straits by some miraculous, uh, by the miraculous arrival of a letter from a rich uncle that will all of a sudden bail us out of our, our dilemma. But God doesn't always work that way. Maybe he wants us to struggle and strain and, and do without and hurt because there are greater things in store for us than, than merely meeting our material needs. Or we expect that uh, our, un- our non-Christian husband will meet God like Paul met God on the road to Damascus and his life will be radically changed in a moment and, and our marriage will be everything that, that we ever desired it to be, but that's not always God's way. He works in quiet ways like a gentle breeze blowing and often we aren't even aware that he's at work. And As a matter of fact, most of the time we can't see it at all. But he is. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He he wasn't in the storm. He he was in that quiet, gentle breeze. Now, that's what God wanted to get across to Elijah, and that's what he wants to get across to us. He's at work. He's in the wind. But uh, we don't always see it. Nevertheless, he's at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You see, it's understanding that that keeps our expectation, expectations realistic. We think we're going to walk into a situation and we'll overpower everyone. And we walk into the thing and stick our foot in our mouth and we go away despairing because we've made a fool of ourselves and we start feeling sorry for ourselves and we get depressed. But maybe God wanted us to look foolish. Or we think that people will treat us well, but they don't. They malign us and misunderstand us. And we try to speak truth to them, and they reject it, and they turn, uh, become hostile. And, and we don't understand because we, we believe God is going to use us in powerful ways to change our, our office or our family. And, and he is, but we don't always see it. 
Sometimes it's just a gentle blowing. Now that's what that's what God wanted Elijah to learn. And so, um, at the end of verse thirteen, after this revelation, the Lord repeats His question to Elijah: Elijah, what what are you doing here? In other words, why aren't you back at Jezreel in the thick of things? Why are you here out of the action? And you notice how well Elijah got the message. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. Men, I, only I am left, and they seek my life. Verbatim. So, so he didn't get the message. You know, a lot of people don't want to be helped out of their depression. They like to be depressed. It always feels good to indulge the flesh for a while. It, it, the flesh, indulging the flesh, eventually will destroy us. Paul says so. If we cater to the flesh, we'll from the flesh reap corruption. But, uh, oh, it feels so good when you first start to indulge the flesh. That's why uh, resentment feels so good at first, and later it destroys you. That's why anger feels so good initially, but later on it becomes so destructive. And that's why self-pity at first is such a delight. My goodness, you can just paddle around in in this uh, puddle of uh, pity and, and feel sorry for you. Oh, it just feels so good. And besides, if we quit feeling sorry for ourselves, then nobody will pay attention to us. They won't bother with us anymore. We like that. Now, notice again, the Lord does not, uh, he doesn't scold Elijah. You can't snap out of a bad mood, nor should we insist that anyone do so. You can't grab someone and shake them and say, all right, stop being depressed. It doesn't work. We can't command our emotions like, like that. But notice what the Lord does. The Lord said to him in verse 12, Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of of Jehu, and I have reserved seven thousand in Israel. You are not, after all, alone, Elijah. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths uh, have not kissed him. Elijah couldn't do a thing about his depression. He couldn't do anything about his melancholy, his feelings. But God would not let him sit on the slopes of Mount Sinai and sulk. He said, "Get up and go." Because God knows that regardless of how depressed we are, our will is not paralyzed. We can choose to act. If we are believers in the Word, then we can obey. And it is the height of folly to sit around in our rooms and feel sorry for ourselves when we have all the resources uh, that God makes available to us to get up and start obeying truth. Maybe it's nothing more than to get up and wash your hair and put on some clean clothes and start cleaning the house and, and do what you can do to prepare for your husband coming home or, or for your wife or whatever, uh, whatever lies ahead. 
or to get up and go to work and, and faithfully do what God has called you through the day. Because God knows that when we begin to take action on the truth, then our emotions begin to heal. You see, we always turn it around. We say, when I heal, then I'll get busy again. But it doesn't work that way. Jesus said, if you want to find yourself, you've got to lose yourself for my sake. The way you heal is to start acting. One of the most therapeutic things in the world is to start helping somebody else when you're down. When somebody else is depressed, ring them up on the telephone and encourage them. And you'll discover that a byproduct of that encouragement is that you are comforted. The longer we sit in our, in our rooms and feel sorry for ourselves, the worse things get. So God says, all right, Elijah, enough of this. Let's get going. Go up to Damascus. I want you to anoint the next king of Aram. That's the biblical word for Syria. Hazael became the next king of Syria, and he became the rod that God used to scourge uh, Ahab from that time on. He was Ahab's nemesis, and God used that man to help eradicate Baalism in the the northern kingdom. And Jehu became the king who succeeded Ahab, who assassinated Jezebel, and who was responsible again for that nation uh, eradicating Baal worship. And Elisha, as you know, became Elijah's right-hand man. And Elisha set in motion the things that brought about at least a temporary revival in in the northern kingdom. So God was at work, you see, even though Elijah didn't see it. And God had plans for Elijah. He would use him to start, start things going. But as long as Elijah sat around and soft and felt sorry for himself and dwelled on his misfortune, God couldn't do one thing. God could only act when Elijah chose to act. As George MacDonald puts it, God will carry us in his arms when we are too young to walk. He will carry us in his arms when we are weary and unable to walk. But he will not carry us in our arms when we will not walk. That's a helpful observation. We have to choose to obey. Now, perhaps you're... uh, feeling sorry for yourself this morning. I know, I've, I've been there, I understand the feeling. But the way out is not to continue to, uh, to think about yourself and center on your misfortune. It's to choose to obey the truth that you have. And when you do, God will begin to heal you. Let's pray. Father, what, what helpful counsel you give us. It's always staggering to read these, uh, these passages and, and to see what uh, uncanny insight you have into human nature and what works and what heals and what sets things right. Help us to believe it, Lord, to see that this is not merely good advice but a revelation from above that, that teaches us how to live life and how to be, as Paul puts it, more than conquerors in life. We thank you for that great sense of well-being that comes from, from knowing that we're accepted by you and, and that we're known by you, though we may not be well-known or well-accepted in this life. We realize that though people will not treat us as we would like them to treat us, that everything will not go our way, still you have a plan for us that will result in, in growth and alignment of our own character with yours, and a plan to work through us to extend your kingdom and 
to draw many, many others to yourself. And we simply want to be a part of that. We, uh, we realize it's the evil one who wants to, to sidetrack us and get us preoccupied with ourselves, and make us dwell on our own, uh, our own troubles rather than, than die to self and begin to serve others. And we know that we have been set free from his, his clutches and his evil intent, set free to serve. And so we confess our unbelief, we confess our self-pity, our unwillingness to put ourselves to death, and, and thank you for the new life that comes when we begin to act according to truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.